Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Yale Journal of Biology and Medicine podcast. YJBM is a PubMed-indexed quarterly journal edited by Yale medical graduate and professional students and peer-reviewed by experts in the fields of biology and medicine. Each issue of the journal is devoted to a focus topic, and through the YJBM podcast, we will take you through the past, present, and future of the issue's subject matter. This episode is part of our series devoted to our June 2020 issue on medicinal plants. I am your host, Wesley Lewis, a second-year graduate student in computational biology and bioinformatics. Today we are speaking with Dr. Anja Loisaga-Velder. Dr. Loisaga-Velder is a German-Mexican clinical psychologist and psychotherapist who has been investigating the therapeutic potential of psychedelics in both indigenous and modern mental health contexts for over 25 years. She is a founding member and director of research and psychotherapy at the Institute for Intercultural Medicine, Nairica, in Mexico. She completed an MA in psychology from the University of Koblenz-Landau, as well as her PhD in medical psychology from the Heidelberg University in Germany. Dr. Luizaga Velder is a researcher and adjunct professor at the National Autonomous University of Mexico, where she continues to add to her body of research alongside teaching and private practice. After coming across descriptions of her work via the Yale Psychedelic Science Group here at the Yale School of Medicine, we at YJBM were immediately impressed, and we are happy to have Anya on our podcast today. Anya, how are you? Very well, thank you. Generally, these interviews focus on topics of our quarterly journal issues, with our June issue pertaining to medicinal plants. This certainly aligns with your body of work on the clinical uses of biological psychedelics. So I'd like to talk about that, but firstly, I'm very interested in your path as a scientist and clinician. Could you describe your academic background? How did your university studies evolve, leading you to research topics like the psychology of addiction and psychedelic treatment regimes? And was this something you were always interested in? Yeah, um, actually, uh, medicinal plants and natural medicine was something I was interested in since early childhood. My grandmother uh, was a homemade herbalist, and I was always uh, fascinated with medicinal plants. Then in my adolescence, um, I accompanied a very dear friend through a psychological break that led him to inpatient psychiatric care and got um, through him the, the experience of also the limitation that psychiatric uh, treatment uh, has to offer for serious mental health challenges. So um, I took a sabbatical after um, uh, finishing high school and um, I had the opportunity to live uh, in a Shipibo community for over six months and got introduced uh, to the ayahuasca healing practices uh, there. Um, which was a, a very life-changing experience for me. And um, after deciding uh, to uh, study psychology, uh, my vocation was always to bridge um, knowledge systems of other cultures about mental health and Western uh, mental health practices. Um, I got uh, very inspired um, 
actually also in my other sense by Stanislav Graf books um, that I found fascinating and so actually since since the beginning of my studies in psychology I, I knew that uh, psychedelic medicine and also indigenous uh, practices around psychedelic use of medicine was something I would like to uh, research more in depth with their potential of expanding current models of western health so yeah that, that was something that um, i um have dedicated my life to since and um the addiction field um i got interested uh through exploring how uh, there is a spectrum of use of psychoactive substances that can range from beneficial use through addictive and harmful use so um that was my my interest in, in addiction and then uh, later also uh, finding more efficient um, ways to treat addiction um, through the use of psychedelics and specifically psychedelic plants that's really interesting thank you for sharing you're welcome um so next question, much of your research focuses on the theoretical and quantitative aspects of the response to ayahuasca and treatments for addiction or eating disorders. How did these two major cohorts of patients come to be? And could you elaborate on the structure and findings of these studies? Yeah, my first study uh, got inspired uh, by a um, psychological internship I had the opportunity to do in Takivasi, which is a therapeutic and research center in Peru. And, and it, the therapeutic program is um, a combination of both indigenous therapeutic approaches and Western therapeutic approaches to addiction. So um, I had the opportunity of collaborate there and in, in terms of my, the research for my PhD, uh, I found it interesting to more in-depth explore the therapeutic mechanisms of ayahuasca for addiction treatment, how this is different or similar to therapeutic processes people have in conventional uh, treatment programs and uh, how the use of indigenous medicine could be possibly uh, integrated into Western health practices. That's how um, this research on ayahuasca and addiction came along. Actually, it's a qualitative research, not a quantitative research, meaning um, I was interested in the questions, what are the mechanisms of change? What are the um, therapeutic uh, factors in, in those treatments? Um, then, uh, uh, inspired by research, but also um, by a conversation with a very dear uh, colleague, uh, Dr. Adela Franz, um, we discussed a lot how the etiology, the neurobiology, and uh, the clinical presentation, even the treatment approaches of addiction and eating approaches, uh, eating uh, like approaches to eating disorders, are similar. So, um, in in this way, um, 
we uh, thought it would be worth exploring uh, how ayahuasca uh, could possibly also help uh, people struggling with eating disorders. And, and both of us knew some patients who had undergone both uh, eating disorders treatment in a conventional way and eating disorder treatment uh, through ayahuasca, which they uh, thought out on an individual quest for for something more in depth. So our research got, got inspired finding out how could this be useful or not useful for, for patients suffering from this condition. Um, I, I think that does basically answer the question that I was asking. Uh, okay. So next question, moving back to the theoretical aspects of using ayahuasca as a tool for psychotherapy, could you possibly speak more to the commonality of this practice, the various effects patients might experience, and the role of the psychotherapist in guiding the patient? Okay, um, ayahuasca is a plant-based uh, psychedelic Um uh, the, the differences uh, of, of ayahuasca and uh, other psychedelics like psilocybin, which are also commonly more used in the psychiatric realm, is uh, that ayahuasca has a strong physical effect. Um, in many people, it has an emetic effect, meaning they, they need to purge uh, during the non-early states of consciousness. Um, other people have other strong physical sensation. Um, my uh, qualitative research and also other studies that I've read indicates that this body-oriented effect seems to have a, a specific therapeutic uh, value in conditions such as addiction and also eating disorders because uh, both conditions involve the body very much. So... Um, People uh, tend to have very physical experience also, not only mental experience, but um, uh, people uh, suffering from addiction have, have shared experience such as uh, this um, subjective sensation of really expelling the toxins they have uh, put into the body or more like a body-oriented therapeutic experience of getting rid of guilt through the vomit and uh, having then this symbolic healing effect of really feeling released in this way. Um, whereas um, patients with um, eating disorders have shared experience such as um, appreciating their body again, being able to uh, really inhabit their body and um, becoming aware of the body. And um, specifically people with bulimia had to have shared their experience of how the vomiting uh, with, with ayahuasca is different uh, with with the vomiting uh, they experienced with, with bulimia, uh, very, very different in their experience and really helped them to um, break through this vicious circle of vomiting, uh, curiously, um, through a similar symptoms, but with, with a very different experience. Um, then um, many uh, patients um, may have... Uh, 
cognitive experience, such as insights in their maladaptive behavior, uh, insights and in how they are harming themselves or uh, how they're harming others, which might be this turning point for uh, finding motivation to change and undergoing a longer treatment. Uh, the, another category of experience are uh, spiritual or peak experiences where um, participants may experience uh, a very meaningful, mystical experience that they perceive as completely life-changing for them or changing the, the values of life, giving them meaning in life. And uh, this for some people has been the pivotal moment of being able to, um, to do a therapeutic change. Um, uh, fourth category of experience are um, emotional experience. Um, could um, describe them as experience of emotional regulation or emotional catharsis. Some participants reported um, to be able to release grief, um, fear, um, or blocked emotions, um, being able to experience emotion they have not experienced in childhood in this way um, and then we, we know from our um, psychological practice that uh, both addiction and eating disorders um, are oftentimes very intimately um, related to difficulties with emotional regulation so this experience of being able to experience the, this emotional experience from another um, point of view um, for some people have a strong therapeutic value. Um, what uh, what the, the, the role of the facilitators in, uh, in this aspect uh, is on the one hand um, preparing uh, participants for such an experience because uh, on the one hand there, there needs to be a clear intention uh, for, for, for such a therapeutic experience to happen and also a certain kind of readiness and um, this uh, would be the, the role of the facilitator or, or of the therapist to, um, to prepare a patient for experience to scan who is apt to have this kind of experience because there's contraindications uh, ayahuasca is certainly uh, a therapeutic tool that is not uh, adequate for everybody. So for, for some people, it could be completely uh, counterproductive. And uh, then after the, the preparation, the, the role of the facilitating is just guiding uh, a safe space, holding a, a safe space for this non state of consciousness to occur, administrating the adequate dose for uh, individual physical and psychological constitution and um, providing uh, the ideal setting conducive to introspection and to the containment of uh, strong emotions that might, might occur in this way. And, and, and the third element of... Uh, um, good facilitator for uh, 
therapeutic outcomes would, would be the integration of those experiences to, to help people um, to integrate uh, this experience into their life, make meaning out of it, and, uh, and helping people to, to really implement uh, those experiences of changes they might have experienced. So I do have one question then. Is it the case that the facilitator is mostly, as you said, just providing the environment for introspection, or are they also prompting introspection? And um, as someone who has spent time studying and being immersed in some of the traditional shamanic cultures that uh, these treatments originate from, what are some of the ways that maybe the modern case of use in therapy or even neo-shamanic cases of psychedelic tourism differ from the traditional usage cases and techniques? Yeah, in indigenous um, ceremony, I would say that uh, one of the main characteristics of a good facilitator is this complementary sensitization to the state of consciousness of the patients uh, or of, of the group and being able to um, to accompany with, with the right song. Like in indigenous healing tradition, uh, music is one of the main therapeutic tools uh, for guiding the non-artist states of consciousness uh, with ayahuasca and for structuring it. So this is a more intuitive process uh, of um, the healer being able to to tune in to the groups or to the patient's need in a way of of guiding or structuring the non-state of consciousness with, with the appropriate song in the moment. So, um... I'd uh, say like the, the main difference in between authentic uh, indigenous um, facilitators and neo-shamans uh, is the depth of knowledge uh, and the depth of experience. So um, uh, in in the right context, uh, the the non-states of consciousness, I think, could provide this um, the space for self-regulation of the psyche. So it, it's it's this balance that traditional healers have in between really providing a safe context, ideally, and not intervening too much. I mean, ideally, because unfortunately, not all indigenous healers are. Um, uh, ethically impeccable, uh, and this could have devastating effects for for patient psychological health if there's an ethical transgression in an honest state of consciousness. So th- this is something that could uh, happen both in authentic indigenous and in pseudo uh, shamanic rituals, right? There's this uh, this ethical trans transgression and then another factor is really like the depth of knowledge the depth of experience uh, uh, appropriately trained healers healer has a lot a lot in-depth experience in other states of consciousness and is not afraid 
if a patient uh, goes into a, a very unusual state of consciousness and is able to, to guide uh, this patient back into normal consciousness. A neo-shamanic practitioner probably would not know what to do. And this might uh, lead to uh, severe psychological affectation of the participant. And, and I think another factor of difference is really like uh, the, um, the knowledge about appropriate dosing, which uh, indigenous healers with uh, in-depth training have a lot of empirical experience of which patient administered which dose. It's not one uh, dose for all. So the dose is a very important factor. You also mentioned that maybe this is not a treatment that's suitable for all patients. And I was wondering if you could elaborate on that, maybe particularly in the environment of addiction as well. I think it is somewhat a counterintuitive concept, but certainly a legitimate one that somebody with substance abuse related disorders could still benefit from the use of a specific substance, in this case ayahuasca, um, for aspects of introspection that may help their recovery. Mm -hmm. Yeah, uh, in terms of counterindications, most importantly is um, our, um, the, a predisposition for psychosis or certain bipolar disorders and certain personality disorders, which could get worse instead of better with, with ayahuasca. Uh, also, then there's some physical contraindications like patients with severe cirrhosis or liver damage um, uh, should not uh, take ayahuasca because this could affect their liver uh, more. Um, and uh, then there's also like gastrointestinal lesions or cardiovascular um, conditions that are counterindicated to ayahuasca use um, and certain medications also like specifically the SSRIs but also other medications so there's actually a whole uh, spectrum of, um, of conditions that people should be aware of. And I think that that, again, is the difference in between a well-trained practitioner and a soido uh, uh, charlatan uh, who would know uh, which uh, people might benefit from, from, this, uh, from this treatment and for which it would be uh, even dangerous to participate. Um, I think th those are important points. Um, for me, it's not counterintuitive in, uh, to uh, treat addiction with ayahuasca in the sense that um, we need to have a mind that oftentimes uh, addiction are very, very severe and um, treatment resistant conditions um, and even life-threatening conditions so um, helping um, patients to being able to achieve um, a, 
a point in consciousness where where they can uh, start a change in life is is a huge opportunity. Like um, you need to remember also that even Bill Wilson, when he founded Alcoholics Anonymous, um, he had a mystical peak experiences that for him was the changing moment that helped him to come out of his addiction. And um, psychedelics in the appropriate context have the possibility to induce such peak experience in, in patients and also other experience with therapeutic value that can be beneficially if they are accompanied in the right way. I, um, as a clinical practitioners find that uh, specifically for, for people with uh, substance abuse condition, the integration part and the psychotherapeutic accompaniment additionally to the um, ayahuasca experience itself is a very important um, therapeutic factor. So um, I think that uh, the ayahuasca treatment could be combined with, with other substance um, abuse treatment in a, in a mutually beneficial way meaning that the traditional substance abuse treatment could be potentialized or, or uh, catalyzed by ayahuasca and in the same way that the ayahuasca experience can be anchored and um, rooted in everyday life through uh, other substance abuse treatments. Okay, so it does sound like that integration part of the therapy, the, the fact that this is something that is being done in a therapeutic context and therefore taken within that context is extremely important. Yeah, and I just wanted to also mention you, you said it's counter-intuitive uh, to use a psychedelic to treat addiction. I think this comes more from our biased understanding that psychedelics uh, have been considered um, for many years as very dangerous uh, substances that that are easily abused. I think it's important to take in, uh, into account that uh, it depends again from the context. In a right therapeutic context, psych psychedelics um, have proven to be quite safe if count uh, indications are taken into account and if there's ethical and well-prepared therapists that accompanying such an experience and actually uh, psychedelics don't produce um, uh, addiction don't produce uh, reinforcing effects so um, patients rarely uh, seek out uh, psychedelics in a compulsive way so I think those those are important uh, um, points to consider so then also being that you've practiced and now been a part of this research community for what's coming upon 25 years of study. How have you seen those uh, views of stigma shift and how have you seen the broader research community uh, begin to change, hopefully as far as opening up to the potential of these therapies? Yeah, it's very encouraging to see that there is uh, increasing uh, interest in, in the mental health field for psychedelics again. And there's very 
good scientists and mental health professionals who are um, uh, conducing uh, well-structured trials, um, producing uh, good scientific evidence and approaching the psychedelics with the care and with the respect uh, that is necessary with working with those substances. So um, this is uh, the, the encouraging part. On the other hand, um, I think there is a lot of also euphoria um, where um, this field might be expanding too quickly without there being enough uh, throughoutly trained mental health professionals to accompanying uh, uh, the uh, psychedelic assisted treatment processes in an adequate way. So uh, I see this as a main challenge that uh, the field is going so quickly and uh, there's there's not enough uh, throughout lead trained uh, professionals out there to being uh, safely accompanying all those processes. And um, yeah, on, on the other hand, uh, as um, my, my interest has been always uh, with indigenous uh, traditions, I um, observed that there's not enough honoring of the knowledge systems that indigenous uh, medicines have preserved over so many years in the terms of... Uh, other non-pharmacological aspects of the use of psychedelics and I, I, I think that psychedelic uh, research would benefit really taking more into account uh, the, the depths and the richness of knowledge that is in indigenous uh, treatment practices. Um, and uh, yeah, and I also think there should be more reciprocity um, for indigenous communities and their needs of mental health in, in this way. Like I see there's millions and millions of dollars being invested in psilocybin research, for instance. But uh, there's, there's little um, consciousness of maybe reciprocity uh, to those indigenous people who made the Western science aware about this molecule um, that has led to uh, all this research and uh, those are often very marginalized uh, populations that have also strong mental health issues and and I do think there should be more reciprocity of this field at uh, taking into account the needs of uh, indigenous cultures and giving back to them in some ways. That's very powerful to hear. I hadn't thought of that context, and I would hope that in the future we can see those marginalized communities being given the care that they certainly deserve. And I hope um, the individuals in these communities, that the, the storied history of these treatments and um, of practitioners who have been helpful and revolutionary in the past and these practices in general, um, can be treated with the respect that is deserved. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 
Um, That's my hope too. <laughs> so in terms of uh, the academic and uh, clinical communities, it sounds as if training programs will probably have to evolve to keep up with all of the change that is currently happening as um, these treatments become more common and as more practitioners, more um, clinical practitioners seek to be able to offer these therapies. Um, do you think that is a challenge that, uh, that these training programs are prepared for or that is being undergone well at this point? Mm, I think those training programs cover many aspects, but one aspect that in my point of view is not sufficiently well covered, and this is due to regulatory restrictions, is the uh, self-experience of therapists with uh, the non-states of consciousness of psychedelic. Uh, having uh, had the experience of, of living with indigenous healers who work with psychedelic, the self-experience of the facilitator is a very, very important part of the training uh, to, to work with uh, those substances. So um, the current regulatory situation does not allow in, in, in a sufficient extent uh, this kind of experience for, for practitioners. And, and also, I, th I think it just takes time. Uh, like if you uh, look into indigenous uh, use of, of uh, psychedelic plants, it's oftentimes a training process over 10 years. I would not say that this, this would be the minimum time in, in a Western setting, but I do think that the, uh, a really true specialization in uh, psychedelic medicine needs more time than the current uh, training programs uh, offer in this way in, in order to, to really... Um, 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 fulfill this this demand that the field offers right like to to have longer training programs more more in-depth with more supervision with, uh, with more apprenticeship in this way do you have any plans to uh, be involved with such training programs to increase your involvements or try to catalyze this change or um, do you think that your maybe research and uh, role as a practitioner on your own is something that uh, warrants more of your time at the moment? Mm, actually, um, I, that's something I've been thinking about, and I do think that I'll participate in, in training programs in, in the next years. Because I, I do think that's that's an important uh, contribution also in, in this field, and that's something I'm definitely interested in. Um, so along a similar vein, um, just in talking about your plans for future years, um, you've talked a little bit about some of your studies that have already occurred or are currently happening. Um, could you talk a bit about kind of the future that you see for your work um, and maybe some of the other multitudinous uh, conditions in which these same therapies and treatments might be applied? 
Mm, I'm personally interested in um, contributing to reopen the field of clinical research in uh, the psychedelic medicine in, Medi in Mexico, which is a field that uh, has been um, stopped in, in the 70s. And so we are currently with a group of other colleagues uh, working on implementing um, clinical research protocols um, and on the other hand hopefully um, being able uh, to do experimental treatments meaning being able to uh, have the permit to therapeutically apply psychedelics for a variety of mental health condition in a safe setting and doing the accompanying research in order to constantly improving the therapeutic interventions. And this is something that I find uh, personally um, very inspiring. So this is something we're working on too, getting the permits to, to do the actual therapeutic work in the field. Uh, I do think psychedelics, you asked me about like which conditions, um, Certainly, uh, I think the field of uh, depression research is a very important field. Uh, there's a lot of research done already with, with psilocybin. I do think that ayahuasca could also um, uh, be uh, therapeutically very valuable in the field of depression research. And... Um, Certainly also the, the field of post-traumatic stress disorders, although MDMA is a very uh, potent uh, candidate as a, as a therapeutic uh, um, tool for, for post-traumatic stress disorders. I, I don't think it's the only one. I, I do think that ayahuasca also has certain therapeutic value in this field. And and other conditions like such as obsessive compulsive disorder that might respond very well to psychedelics. And there's, there's a variety actually of applications. That's very interesting. So it sounds like the potential for ayahuasca to be used as an intervention in so many cases certainly does exist. And um, it's interesting to imagine what further exploration will show in the next 10 years. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And thank you so much again for taking the time to talk with me today. Um, You're welcome. Thank you for your interest. I really appreciate you sitting with us. Uh, have a wonderful rest of your day. Yeah, likewise. Okay. Goodbye. Goodbye.